Our, our passage this morning is found in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 to 31. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 to 31. This is God's word, and it reads, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased them from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of their priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offerings at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. The story of Nehemiah, I find, is actually a very interesting one. Um, full of drama, full of action. I like personally like to think of Nehemiah as an Old Testament reformer because he finds himself in a very interesting part within the biblical narrative, within the biblical story. You see, God had made a covenant with Israel. There were certain conditions that Israel had to fulfill in order to have a proper relationship with God. One of those conditions was very important, that God was to be their exclusive object of worship. They couldn't worship any other God. God was to be exclusively the object of their faith and worship. But as many of us know, Israel did not fulfill that condition. They did something called idolatry. They worshipped other gods. So what happens? Well, God, you know, judged them. Or to use the biblical term, God cursed them. And part of that curse meant that they were to be sent in exile. They would be kicked out of the land. God's presence would not dwell among them. And that's exactly what happened. For 70 years, Israel was in exile in Babylon, the empire of the, uh, the Babylonian Empire, and in the Persian Empire. However, God made, gave them a promise saying, you know, despite you being in exile, I will give you a promise that you will physically one day return to the land of Israel. But not only physically, you will also return spiritually. You will abandon your former gods and you will return to me. This is where Nehemiah finds himself in our story. He was working for the king of Persia, and upon hearing that his beloved city, Jerusalem, that its walls were broken down, I mean, he felt terrible. He felt sad, began crying to God and crying within himself, within his own soul, and he asked for permission to return. And he's, give, and he's granted that permission. So he returns, and it's, 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 like, it's, it's a story full of drama and action because as he undertakes this project to rebuild the walls, I mean, there's enemies surrounding Israel that are trying to stop him from doing just that. And it gets to the point of the story where Nehemiah and his people are working with tools in one hand and weapons in the other. And at the end, he is able to complete this massive project. 
But not only does Nehemiah reform Jerusalem's defenses and infrastructure, he also tries to reform their spiritual life. With the help of a scribe by the name of Ezra, they begin reading the law once again and teaching the people about who God is and what he demands of them. So this story of Nehemiah, once again, it just exemplifies, you know, great leadership. What a, what a, and, and there's actually been many leadership conferences that draw from Nehemiah's life and principles and how you could apply it to your workplace, to your church, and to your home. And I'm not saying there's, there's nothing bad with that. It just gets super awkward when you come across this passage. What do you do with a Nehemiah who curses? What do you do with a Nehemiah who beats people? What do you do with a Nehemiah who pulls hair? Can you imagine a leadership conference that just like focuses on this part? It would not be good. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? And what we're going to learn this morning is that although Israel had been physically in exile for 70 years, their heart was still very much far away from God. They remained in spiritual exile. And no amount of threats and judgment of the law could change their hearts. Only Jesus would come to do that many years after. So when we get to our passage, verses 23 to 24, we see two things that have happened. One, some of the men of Israel had married foreign women. And two, that the kids couldn't speak Hebrew. On the surface, when I first read this passage, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with this. I don't see what's wrong with this picture. I myself am married to someone from a different country. My family's from Mexico and El Salvador. What's wrong with marrying someone from another country? I actually have cousins who can't even speak Spanish. So I'm like, what's wrong, you know, if kids can't speak the native language? What's Nehemiah's deal? What's wrong? Well, in order for us to kind of understand what's going on here, we, have, we need some background knowledge on how language worked in the ancient world. You see, here in the United States, whenever we speak of language, culture, and religion, we usually treat those subjects separately. But in the ancient world, it didn't work that way. These three things, language, culture, and religion, were actually intimately related to one another. Let me give you a modern example. Whenever, whenever I'm talking Spanish with someone, and I hear that they have a Mexican accent, I know that if I offer them a Coca-Cola, they won't say no. You know, just something about, you know, that, you know, them speaking a certain way automatically puts them within a cultural bubble. For another example, I married Megan's, you know, her family's from Arkansas, you know, that, that Southern culture. I've learned that if I'm talking to someone in English and I hear that Southern, you know, accent, if you offer them sweet tea, they won't say no to that either. You know, it's just a cultural thing. Language is intimately related to culture. But in the ancient world, it's not just culture. Language is also intimately related with religion. To speak a certain language automatically puts you within a culture and within a particular religion. Which is why Nehemiah was so concerned that the kids could not speak Hebrew. Because that means they were outside of the Hebrew culture. But, not, but more importantly, they were also outside of what? The Hebrew religion. Instead, what language did the kids speak? They spoke the language of the enemies of Israel. The language of Ashdod the language of Ammon, the language of Moab, meaning that Israel and the next generation had already abandoned the one true God. That's the tragedy and the problem of our passage. And the law had already warned about this. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, 
listen to these words. God had warned about this, this thing happening. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. So the issue in our passage is not that these women were born in a different country. We actually have examples of other women like Rahab and Ruth who were not native to Israel. They weren't native there, but they, they were part of Israel's community. Why? Because they worshiped. They've embraced with faith the one true God. So the issue here is that these foreigners that these men are marrying are people who hold to other gods and actually hate the God of Israel, which is why God prohibited these types of marriages and even threatens death. Once again, part of the conditions of Israel being in relationship with God, in covenant with God, was that they can only exclusively worship him. To marry foreign women who hold to other gods violate those conditions. So having this background helps us understand Nehemiah's reaction. In verse 23, upon finding out that these men of Israel had married foreign women and the kids could not speak Hebrew, but instead spoke the language of Israel's enemies. What does Nehemiah do? In verse 25, he confronts them, he curses them, and pulls their hair. It's meant to be a very shocking and graphic scene. You know, this is the same guy who's just building their walls. This is the same guy who's just advocating for them before the king of Persia. Why is he beating up his own people? And, and, and the question that came into my mind is, was it wrong for him to do this? And the answer is actually no. It wasn't wrong for Nehemiah to do this. You see, Nehemiah was a leader, and at the same time, he was a judge among the people of Israel. He had to regulate their behavior, and what had just happened is that they had just broken the law. And therefore, they needed the judgment of the law. They needed the consequence for breaking the law. So whenever you hear the the word that he cursed them, it's not the cussing that we know. It's actually the curses of the law. May God strike you as I am striking you. May you be kicked out of his people. Whenever he's pulling out their hair, he's actually declaring their judgment of the law. May God pull you out of his people as I am pulling your hair. So the question shouldn't be, shouldn't be, was Nehemiah wrong? I think that's the wrong question to ask. But rather, the question should be, does that actually fix the problem? Israel is in spiritual exile. Does the beating, does the cursing, does the confronting and the pulling of hair Does that actually fix the problem? I don't know about you, but I've been in churches where um, the pastor, all he does is, you know, it's just like the pulpit beating, just yelling at you, threatening you. Once a pastor came, actually, and kind of talking about tithing, and he just starts, you know, threatening people. You know, God, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this, do that. You know, it's scary, right? And it was super, it's terrible. But this, and in my mind, I remember listening. It's like, yeah, maybe that worked for one Sunday, but does that actually create conviction within the people? Does that actually change hearts? The answer is no. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. But the story doesn't stop there. The problem was way bigger than Nehemiah thought. When we reach verses 28 to 29, we see that the problem has actually infected every aspect of Israel's society. We see that not only were the men and children corrupted, but also the priesthood. You see, the priesthood was the religious authority of Israel. They were the Old Testament pastors, to put it in those terms. And what happens in verse 28? 
one of the priests had married one of the daughters of the enemies of Israel. Meaning what? We already talked about what those marriages mean. It means that even some of the priests had gone after other gods. This is... This is, this, is, this, is, this is such a terrible picture because this is near the end of Nehemiah's story. This is not in the middle of the story. This is at the end of the chapter, end of the book. And we see that from the youngest of children to the highest of ranks, Israel is completely corrupted. You know, kind of an analogy that, that, that I like to use is that, for example, whenever there's a, we're in, we're in a congregation, we're in a community, we're in a church, whenever there's a scandal from a member... Yes, that hurts the church. Yes, that damages the church. But that doesn't really destroy the church. I've seen churches where uh, churches still survive if a member does something like that. But what if the pastor is the one who's the center of the scandal? That destroys communities. And that's exactly what's happening here. Old Testament pastors, the priests, have gone after other gods. So what, what, what's being communicated to us in this passage is that Israel is in complete and utter spiritual exile. This, uh, uh, although they are physically there, they are spiritually still in Babylon and in Persia. And our passage has a very disappointing ending. Despite all of Nehemiah's efforts, look at all he did. Rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the defenses, trying to build the infrastructure of Israel once again. Let's read them the law. He did so much only to have this type of ending. And it begs this question. How did they really return? Did they really return physically? They were already giving themselves over to their enemies. How did they return spiritually? They were already following after other gods. And the answer is no. Israel had not really returned. And personally, for me, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible is actually verse 31. This is the ending of the book. All Nehemiah can say to this corruption, from the children all the way to the priest, is these words. It says, remember me, O my God, for good. That is how the book ends. It doesn't tell us that the men repented. That the priest was reformed. It doesn't end like that. It ends with this question. Had Israel really returned? And as the readers, we answer, no. Remember me, oh my God, for good. 450 years later, God does remember. How does he remember? He remembers by sending his only son, Jesus. I want you to Hear these words of Matthew in light of all that we just learned and read. Matthew 11, chapter, uh, sorry, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 29, reads like this. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, spiritual transformation, a changing of hearts, is found in the person of Jesus. Notice that Jesus' ministry didn't consist of cursing, didn't consist of beating people, didn't consist of pulling of hair. Instead, what does he do? He actually takes the full force of the law upon himself, upon the cross. You see, I want us to note the contrast between the story of Nehemiah and the story of Jesus Because the law could only punish sin, only made people 
uh, only gave people the knowledge of sin and could only punish sin. Jesus actually frees us and heals us from the power and evil of sin. And the beauty of it, brothers and sisters, is that that's exactly what you and me have. We have that freedom. We have that healing. Jesus does what Nehemiah couldn't. The new covenant community, the new Israel that we are, we have what Nehemiah and his people don't have. What, our, what Nehemiah's passage kind of confronts the reader is this. Who takes the curse of the law for you? Who takes the beating, the cursing, and the pulling of hair for you? Christians have an answer to that. You and I have an answer to that. For those who have embraced Christ, we say, yes, Jesus actually took the curse. Jesus took the pulling of hair. Jesus took the beating. Jesus is the answer to Nehemiah's prayer when he says, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And he has remembered us. And this leads us to a time of application. What does this mean for the church today? When we read Nehemiah, what does it mean for you know us in 2022? Well, one, it means that External changes do not advance the kingdom of God. You know, one of the things that surprised me, not surprised me, one of the things that I found very encouraging when I first you know, came across Good Shepherd is Mark Sumter's just zeal for evangelism. You know, he's always texting me, hey, let's go evangelize, let's go evangelize. And it made me reflect when, when, when kind of preparing for the sermon how what really changes people's hearts. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's not Christian. Um, we, we can reform outwardly our communities in our government to reflect Christian values and Christian politics. But we should ask ourselves, does that actually change people's hearts? And as we read, no, that doesn't change hearts. What changes hearts? The gospel. Secondly, the passage teaches us that sanctification begins inwardly, not outwardly. You know, part of Nehemiah's spiritual reform was that they would read for hours the law. It was about, you know, getting all that knowledge, getting, you know, people enforcing law adherence. But that actually changed their hearts. No. And what we have here as a new Christian, as a new covenant community, is God's spirit in us beginning that work, beginning that holiness, beginning that new life. So no amount of prayer, no amount of, you know, Bible reading, no matter how many Christians things you do, our sanctification doesn't begin with works. It begins with what? God's Spirit in us. That's what Nehemiah teaches us. Thirdly, for Nehemiah's story, in contrast to the gospel, it should be, should be comforting to us. Why? Because it teaches us that you don't need threats and you don't need judgments to live a holy life. You don't need someone to threaten you with hell. You don't need someone to threaten you of your salvation to do holy living. Christ is enough. Christ took that threat, Christ took that judgment, and he works in us by his spirit. He forgives us when we mess up, strengthens us in our weakness, and he loves us unconditionally. You don't need threats if you have Christ. You don't need the law, the threats and the judgment of the law, to live a holy life when you have Christ. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, Israel was in need of more than just a new city. They were in need of more than just a new temple and a new way of living. They needed a new heart. And no amount of external reform 
or change will ever return us to God. Only Jesus and his transforming power over our hearts, over our souls, over our body, over our all can do that. Amen? Amen. With that, let us, let us pray. Our Father who are in heaven, we come before you thankful for this, this opportunity to worship as one people. And we're thankful for the gospel, Lord. The story of Nehemiah teaches us how, how holy you really are. And the type of obedience that you demand of us. And Israel's testimony shows us that, yeah, we're not, we're not able to live to your standards. We're not able to obey perfectly or live in a holy way. Which is why we're so thankful for your son. He obeyed the law in a way we couldn't. And he is holy in a way that we would never be. And we're so thankful for the gift of your spirit that works in us today, that works in us now, that currently unites us and sustains us this very moment because it is that same spirit that now produces a love for your law, a love for your word, a love for your people, and a love for others. And we pray that you will continue to work in us, renew us, transform us so that we can um, love our neighbor and love you. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.